Good morning, my name is Chuck Betters. I'm the senior pastor here at Reach Church, and it's just such a privilege to come into your home uh, this morning, as you heard earlier. Next Sunday um, at six o'clock, we're going to be having an outdoor worship service. So set next Sunday evening at six o'clock. In the meantime, we're gonna be continuing with our wonderful online services. Thank you to our worship team. What a wonderful, beautiful time of worship. Thank you so much. Um, and yes, we are going to miss uh, Michael and Stephanie. Oh, I just had a great privilege of um, doing premarital counseling with them, getting to know them. Uh, they, I learned a lot from them, and I hope they learned from us as well. So we are truly going to miss them. So when Jesus was arrested and he was before Pilate, Pilate asked him a question. It's a very interesting question. It was like out of nowhere. The question was this, what is truth? What is truth? Because as I look at our culture, even inside the church, what I see is a denial of the truth. I see um, being duped into believing lies. I see it in relationships. I see it in conflict resolution. I see it even in the way we engage with things like COVID-19. There's, there's this denial of truth. There's this, uh, or misunderstanding of the truth or just taking a kernel of truth. And so in this series, New Level of Good, we see that in the book of Philippians and Paul's letter to the Philippians that there is a clear pattern that Paul uses to arrive at truth. And the thing that makes Paul such a brilliant writer and such a convincer of people is that he employs three ways. There's three ways that he uses that he draws from the Greeks of arriving at truth of convincing people of truth. My dad, uh, growing up, even before I, was, I knew I was gonna be a pastor, he used to say to me over and over again these three terms. I never thought I'd be preaching a sermon on them when I was 14 years old and he's sharing these terms with me, but here I am. Um, the first way of arriving at truth is called ethos, ethos. Ethos is an argument that's made, that's based on the credibility of the person making the argument, okay? So the person making the argument is credible. The person making an argument brings that kind of credibility to it. So if I were to be making a speech um, in front of a bunch of people who were uh, into something like Kung Fu. You can ask uh, Master Ron, because he used to train me in this. I would have zero credibility to make that kind of argument in front of a bunch of people who you know, were masters at Kung Fu because I stink at it. So I would have no ethos if I were to make that kind of argument. I'd have no credibility. So Paul uses ethos from the very start of Philippians. It's brilliant the way he does it. I mean, you should study it because the way that he arrives at truth and brings the people to truth is just brilliant. In Philippians 1.1, he says this. This is the way he opens the letter. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers 
and deacons. In other words, here's my cred, okay? Here's my cred, here is who I am. He continues in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, he's saying, those who are hearing what he has to say, he brings such credibility that their lives are changing and they're bolder about sharing the gospel. That's ethos. That's what that is. In Philippians 1.21, he says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he lived it. So that's ethos. That's credibility. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. I mean, this is when you hear someone make an argument and you say, I'm going to believe that argument or I'm going to believe what that person feels because they're a godly person. And you can see where that goes off the rails because that's not a good reason to believe something someone says if it's just that, that they're a godly person. So this person must be telling the truth because of what I think of their character and what I can see from the outside and what I see of them and what they say of themselves. It could be true, it may not be true, even if it is true what they're saying about themselves, doesn't necessarily make their argument true. The second way of getting to truth is called pathos. So ethos is credibility of the person. Pathos is the passion with which they develop the argument. It's the relevance. It's, it's the way that they um, appeal to felt needs, to emotional needs. It's, it's an idea of a passionate belief, appealing to their belief system. And that's what Paul does in Philippians 1. These aren't bad things. He says in verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians needed to be thanked. We all do. They needed to be acknowledged for what they were doing. This is pathos. This is a way of saying, I relate to you. I see who you are and I'm making the argument based on that or with that in view. And once again, you can see how dangerous that would be if that's all it is. I mean, everyone likes to be prayed for. I prayed for you in my quiet time. So you believe the things I say, right? Wrong. You were nice to me and to my child. You counseled me. Michael and Stephanie, I said earlier, I counseled them. Melanie and I counseled them, premarital counseling. If they were to believe me or Melanie, if we were to make a truth claim based on that alone, that's pathos. And that's not good. That's a bad thing. So, Paul continues in Philippians 1.20, more pathos. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Because that's what the Philippians wanted for themselves. Who doesn't want that for Christ to be honored? There's nothing wrong with this. Negatively, though, you can appeal to someone on the basis of them being a victim on you being a victim and you can appeal to them and make truth claims based on that alone. Philippians 1, the beginning of this is brilliant. It's all ethos and pathos. That's all it is. It's all true, but that's, that's the entirety of the chapter. 
Like I said, ethos is the credibility of the person speaking. Pathos is the passion or the way they relate, the relevance, the felt needs of the people listening, the conviction with which they speak. You know, sometimes you can believe someone based on pathos because they've spoken with conviction and the other party who may, you know, rebut what they're saying just remains silent. You can't come to truth that way either, if that's all there is. Because ethos and pathos alone don't bring you to truth. Because I said there was three ways. There's three steps. The person is credible, ethos. The person is godly. There must be something to what they're saying, right? So you have someone in your life, you look up to them and you see them and they make a truth claim or maybe they make a claim about somebody else. And based on your knowledge of who that person is, you receive it and you believe it. That's what ethos is. If it's that alone, I'd like to introduce you to King David who had plenty of ethos, a man after God's own heart. He's the only one that was ever said about in scripture. I'd like to introduce you to King David who took a walk on his balcony because you know what? We're all sinners. So if you're basing it on ethos alone, that's not a good thing. I'd like to introduce you to Noah who after the flood, I mean, after the flood, he gets drunk. I'd like to introduce you to Elijah. Elijah, who after experiencing, I mean, after experiencing the prophets of Baal, a victory over them where God literally sent fire down from heaven to show his power. And after Elijah killed the prophets, what does he do? He hides in a cave. If you're gonna base it on ethos alone of Elijah, you have to factor that in as well. I hope this makes sense. I'd like to introduce you to Peter. Peter who denied Jesus and then he preached with passion and ethos and pathos and we'll see later on something else. And he became a pillar of the early church. But then in Acts 10 and 11, he reverts back to racism. So if you're gonna base it on what Peter says and his, and his character alone, and what you think of him is this great hero of the faith and you're gonna buy into what he says just because of that, or just because of his passion, you've made a very, very big mistake. We do it all the time with people in the church. Well, I believe that person. I believe what they're telling me, this weird doctrine or this weird thing, or maybe it's a conflict or whatever, because that person is godly. Can't stand that term, by the way, that they're godly. So I can just believe them. That's it, done. That's ethos. It's not even ethos. I believe this person because they care about me because they counsel me at one point. That's pathos. That's not enough either because there's a third element of arriving at truth. It's the most important element at arriving at truth. And it isn't related necessarily to the credibility of the person speaking it. It isn't related to the way they're saying it. It isn't related to the emotion. It isn't related to felt needs. It isn't related to any of that. The third element is called logos. Now, I wish it rhymed. I wish it was pronounced the same way, but it's not. Pathos, ethos, logos. Sorry, it's a long O on both of them. Logos, 
It's an argument made using a series of, of rational statements, of empirical evidence, of fact, of reason. It's literally logic. It's making a, an argument from that perspective, taking the facts. What is the truth? What are the words? What are the sentences that are true statements? Lining them up and saying, this is an argument. It doesn't matter about the ethos and the pathos that you are factoring in. This wins the day. The Logos wins the day. So Philippians 1 is all ethos and pathos. But Paul doesn't rely on those things alone. Because in chapter 2, after this incredible chapter 1, he launches in to an amazing statement of Logos. That's what he does. Philippians 2, 1 through 2 so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. You know, if, if you, in other words, he's saying, if anything I said in Philippians 1 tugged on your heartstrings, please listen to the facts about what I'm about to share with you. If you thought anything of me, if you thought I spoke well, whatever, please listen to what I'm about to say. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you really think I'm credible, Paul's saying, if you really think I have, if I've appealed to you from an emotional relevant perspective, complete it. Complete the ethos and the pathos with one more element, the logos. Be of the same mind. In other words, think, think. Believe the same things, accept the facts, be of one accord. He continues in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, interesting. He's launching into Jesus now. Who, though he was in the form of God, fact, statement of fact, logos, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, fact, but emptied himself, fact, by taking the form of a servant, logos, being born in the likeness of men, logos, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, statement of fact, logos, they knew it happened, even death on a cross. Paul's saying, here's the logos, here are the facts to believe and to live by. It's only after Paul has gotten to that point that he begins to tell the Philippians how now they're supposed to live. Doesn't rely on ethos alone. Doesn't rely on his credibility, his godliness, whatever. He relies on the facts. Logos is an appeal to facts and logic, but it doesn't matter to many people at this point because the ethos and the pathos have won the day. Facts don't matter. Truth doesn't matter. For logos, many times a kernel of truth is twisted or a series of overwhelming antidotes or whatever or half-truths are said or you hit people with a bunch of things so it's overwhelming so it must be right. Paul is saying that the only way to understand life is through statements of fact about nothing but Jesus. Through the lens of Jesus emptying himself. Through the lens of him becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Through all of that, that's the way to understand life's events, things that 
hit you, conflict, friendships, marriage, parenting, whatever it may be, that's the way, is seeing it through that lens. Not through ethos and pathos, but through logos. It's utterly amazing, utterly amazing that in John, in his gospel, which was written to the Greeks, doesn't say that Jesus has logos. Doesn't say Jesus has truth. Doesn't say Jesus speaks truth. Doesn't say any of that. Well, it does. But he says that Jesus is the logos. In the beginning was the word. That's logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, John's saying in the beginning, God has had a plan all the way in eternity. He's had that plan. He had a logical series of events in mind, logos. He had those in mind, this ordered creation and listen, and that Jesus is the plan. So he's saying, Jesus is the plan. He is the logos. He is the logic. He is the truth. He is all of those things. And so I thought about this past week about how do we get to truth? Because I think these things are so important. Ethos, pathos, logos. And then this week happened. And something hit me like a Mack truck. Because listen, you can have ethos, you can have pathos, and you can even know about logos. You can have all three and totally miss the truth. Because as I said earlier, I see our culture and I see even people in churches denying the truth, being duped by a lie. So there's this, this denial of the truth. There's being duped by a lie. But then I thought this past week, there's a third category. And the third category is this. It's knowing what the truth is and not caring about it. Knowing the truth, knowing the logos and saying, push it aside, no. Knowing it's there, accepting it, whatever, but I've got to go back to ethos and pathos because I got to go back to a little passion because this person says this or this, even when the truth is right there. That's the real problem because you can know all of these things. You can be saying amen, you can be a theologian, you can be a pastor, you can be a Christian, whatever, and know much more than I do about the logos and still not get it. After George Floyd was murdered, and I saw this, I went back to the drawing board and I thought, how can I preach a sermon on truth, on ethos, on pathos, on logos, and people get it and still not change a thing? And then I got my sermon for today, because I'm leading all the way up to this point, because I realized a big step was missing. Because you can have all of that and still know the truth and reject it or know the truth and not reject it, but say, I know it's true, but I don't care or deny the truth or be duped by a lie or whatever it may be, or just be drawn in by ethos or pathos or whatever. All of that can happen. All of that can happen. And this is why it happens because a critical step was missing from the start. You can be like, you know, what Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth because something's missing. And I'm gonna tell you what it is, listen. Is your heart broken? Is your heart broken? 
Is your heart broken? More specifically, is your heart broken for what breaks God's heart? Not for the things that break your heart. It could be petty stuff that breaks your heart or my heart. Does your heart break for the things that breaks God's heart? Because before you can even have a conversation that's useful about the truth, your heart needs to break. Your heart needs to break because Otherwise, you're just adding to the cacophony of noise. Even if you're saying something true, if your heart isn't broken when you're saying it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't go any further past your lips or past people who think exactly the same way you do. Perhaps it's the wrong way or right way or whatever. Because this is what must happen before you or I should engage with what is true and noble. This is what will happen before the next level of good. Your heart needs to break. And I mean really break. I asked Nehemiah Wilson, one of my greatest students, I'm not just saying that, of all time, from GCA, I've known him so many years, to share a poem that he wrote that speaks to this. Dear white man, Will you ever understand? What will it take for you to finally realize that I too am crafted by the master's hand? How many dreams must you drive into sand before you finally realize what is true? Dear white man, will you ever understand? Underneath this skin, is your fellow human, beautiful, intelligent, equal. Though different in hue, I too am crafted by the master's hand. Yet all you see is smuggler of contraband, a threat to everything surrounding your land. Dear white man, I need you to understand that you and I are of the same brand, not meant to be torn in two, I too. I'm crafted by the master's hand. I just want to love you like Jesus can. But lately, you make it nearly impossible to. Dear white man, I pray you understand that we too are crafted by the master's hand. Does that make your heart break when you hear that? Or do you hear lines like, dear white man, will you ever understand and say, I understand. It's not all of us. Your heart hasn't broken. Maybe you do understand a little bit, but your heart still isn't broken. Maybe when you hear a line like, yet all you see is a smuggler of contraband. That's not all I see. That's not true. That's not true. It's not all I see. Your heart hasn't broken. You can't receive truth. You can't be helpful. My desire is to love you like Jesus. I, I remember somebody I loved like that and they betrayed me or I remember someone I loved like that and they didn't really see it. You don't get it because your heart isn't broken. My heart isn't broken. Our hearts need to break for what breaks God's heart. This poem right here breaks my heart. 
breaks my heart that this precious man here, this precious young man who has to write something like this and try to defend it or whatever it may be, break your heart. You say, my heart did break when I saw George Floyd murdered. Not if the next thing out of your mouth was, but. You say, my heart did break when I saw George Floyd murdered. Not if the next thing out of your mouth is, but not all police officers are like that. You say, my heart did break when I saw George Floyd murdered. Not if the next thing out of your mouth is let's get revenge. Not if the next thing out of your mouth is hate. Break my heart for what breaks yours before even engaging what the truth is, how we arrive at truth, how we're duped into believing lies before we even talk about our hearts. They need to break for what breaks God's heart. You say, my heart did break when I saw George Floyd murdered. Then full stop, grieve, mourn, love your black brothers and sisters. Stop posting a bunch of things on Facebook that tries to prove your point. Give them all kinds of latitude and grace to grieve. Words that come from a broken heart can be handled by God. They should be able to be handled by us too if we have this heart. God can handle our broken hearts. So if we have God's heart, if we're men and women after God's own heart and our hearts have broken for what breaks his, then we should be able to handle big statements, words, things maybe not quite said exactly the way we would like them to be said or whatever. You say my heart breaks when I see the looting going on in these cities. Full stop. Grieve. Pray. It breaks the hearts of African Americans as well. We don't need you to be drawing false dichotomies on either side. Of course it's not good what's happening in the cities. Of course it's not. That's the point. It shouldn't be the target points out a more Christ-centered statement, puts out a more Christ-centered statement than many Christians are doing when it comes to the looting. I mean, listen to what they wrote. This is what they wrote when they closed some of their stores. We are heartbroken by the death of George Floyd and the pain it is causing our community. At this time, we've made the decision to close a number of stores until further notice. Our focus will remain on our team members' safety and helping our community heal. Of course, they're a business. And if that was your first response, you still don't get it. Your heart isn't broken. Yes, it's a business, but they're also human. And they're also drawing from something that's true, whether they know it or not, which is called general revelation, which gives us sound business principles because, you know, whether their motives are right or wrong, brilliant move. Brilliant. Because that's what speaks to people. Because that's when people can receive the truth. They nailed it. We're heartbroken, period. Because it's only when your heart breaks for what breaks God's heart that you can receive the truth. It's when our hearts are broken by what breaks God's heart that we are truly in a position to apply nothing but Jesus to whatever the case may be. Because that is the answer. 
That's the answer to all of it. Nothing but Jesus applied liberally to all of it. That's the answer, the logos, nothing but Jesus. Yes, nothing but Jesus applied to the execution of George Floyd. And it's the narrow path and it's really hard for everyone regardless of race. Philippians 2, 5 through 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, here's the example of how our heart will break for the things that break God's heart. Jesus became one of us. That's nothing but Jesus applied to the situation. Become one of your black brothers or sisters. Put yourself in their shoes. That's what Philippians teaches us. If you've experienced injustice, if you've experienced betrayal, if you've experienced any measure of that, remember what it felt like. Go back there if you need to and then multiply it by whatever you think you need to multiply it by and feel as they're feeling. Your heart has to be broken first. That's when God starts using you. Philippians 2, 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the death on a cross. Heart will be broken by injustice. Your heart will be broken by injustice when you are at the foot of the cross looking up at someone who was crucified unjustly. Someone who was murdered, executed. It's the greatest injustice of all time. I mean, I wrote a post on Facebook this past week about this, this idea, because, you know, Peter is out preaching at Pentecost and he's preaching to people from all over the world who weren't there when Jesus was crucified, by the way. He's preaching to them and he says this in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, you crucified and killed by the, law, by the hands of lawless men. In other words, you did it. That's how we can put ourselves there. That's how our hearts can break for what breaks God's heart is by putting ourselves at the foot of the cross. There's a great scene in an Easter play we used to do around here. The song that was used was called Mary Did You Know, very famous song. And the only character on stage was Mary and the main character whose heart was being led towards Jesus. And it's very artistic. And then there's a cross in the middle. And at the end, as there's this just very emotional a Roman soldier comes out and Jesus comes out and the Roman soldier nails him to the cross while the main character is kneeling there. And then the Roman soldier takes the hand of the main character and puts the hammer in his hand. He did it. I nailed him to the cross. Behold my angry voice among the scoffers. It was my sin that nailed him there. So if we already committed the greatest injustice of all time by nailing Jesus to the cross, it's not a jump to say that you, that me, that we, we were the ones with our knee on the neck of George Floyd. You were, I was. That changes the whole conversation. That's the gospel though. We did it. We did it. Because the cross makes no distinction between the oppressor 
and the oppressed. Hear me, those of you who are struggling with bitterness over this, over what happened, I'm gonna speak very carefully, but boldly because this is the gospel. I'm on your side, know that. But hear me because if your heart is hardened over the incredible injustice, you too will struggle with truth. You too will struggle to help because at the cross, we're all equal, all of us. That's the gospel. There's level ground at the cross. It's not different levels, the cross. Because what we do is we cancel people out. I mean, we've canceled out that police officer for good. We've canceled them out. Have you ever struggled with hatred? Have you struggled with dislike? You, somebody you just really just don't like, someone who's hurt you. I want you to get that person's picture in your mind right now. Whoever that may be. Maybe it's a lot of people. I don't know. Let me ask you a question. Ask myself a question. Is it possible that you only love God as much as the person you love the least? Is it possible that you could never rise above that? Let's put that back up, please. Is it possible, and leave it up for a minute or not a minute, 10 seconds. Is it possible that you love God, that I love God only as much as the person we love the least, regardless of which side of the debate you're on, regardless of whether you are the oppressed or the oppressor. John 17, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, that they may be one, just as you and the Father are in me, just as, Jesus says, just as I am one with the Father, that's the kind of love I'm praying for, for the people, just as. That's a new level of good. Because there's a difference between a broken heart and a bitter heart. Righteous anger is okay, but it can only flow from a broken heart. Words of truth, hard words of truth are okay, but they can only flow from a, a broken heart. Action, whatever that may be is okay, but it can only flow from a broken heart. Your heart needs to be broken by this. And I'm talking about everyone from all sides. Your heart first has to be broken by this poem. It has to be broken. I'll give you an example of how this is possible. I mean, one of the, I thought of the Amish this morning. I thought of the Amish. Remember that horrible thing that happened in Lancaster where those little girls were, were killed? And the Amish came out and forgave them. I mean, that's inhuman to me. I don't know what that is. That's, they still know it's wrong, it's, but it was from a, a broken heart. I'll give you an example from recently. One of the most beautiful things that was said this past week was related to another racial incident that happened. This other racial incident happened and it was overshadowed by everything else. There was a woman walking a dog in Central Park and there was an African-American man who asked her to please put her dog on a leash and she didn't want to do it. So he began filming her. And then she began acting as though she was being accosted. She began acting as though she was in danger. She calls 911. She calls 911, reports him, placing him in danger, using the police as a weapon, lying, etc. The whole thing was caught and it was put on social media. What a horrible person that is. Hmm? She's outed, 
lost her job. Man, she was shamed on social media. Her life was over. I mean, there was her company fired her publicly. But one of the most beautiful statements made this past week was by that African-American man, by Christian Cooper, who was on the receiving end of this really awful treatment. He said this, if you think what she did was wrong, that she was trying to bring death by cop down on my head, then there is absolutely no way you can justify then turning around and putting a death threat on her head. No, it's, it makes sense. But then he keeps going on. He said he's uncomfortable with defining her life by a couple of seconds of very poor judgment. He said, it's a little bit of a frenzy. I'm uncomfortable with that. If our goal is to change the underlying factors, I'm not sure this young woman having her life completely torn apart serves that goal. Do you see what happened to her? She was canceled out by all of us. She means nothing now. Her life is over and there's hypocrisy all over that. Even the firm who fired her later it was uncovered. Of course it was. that They'd allowed someone who beat his wife to be promoted. Utter hypocrisy is what happens when we cancel people out. When our hearts are broken for what breaks God's heart, there's no cancel culture. It can't exist at the foot of the cross. Paul uses ethos and pathos in chapter one, but if that's all there is, there's no hope in that. If all we have is hope in the credibility of someone or in a felt need pathos, we have nothing, but we have logos. We have the truth. We have hope. And I have shared so far that Paul launches into logos in chapter two, into this progression of logic, of facts. He humbled himself, logos. He went to death, logos. On a cross, logos. As a criminal, logos. But it doesn't stop there. So there would be no hope in that. We can live by that. Lots of great things, I just shared a couple of them. But he goes on in verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When our hearts break for what breaks God's heart, we embrace the logos. We embrace nothing but Jesus because we have nothing else to give. I have nothing else to give to this situation except Jesus. That's all I have. And that's a whole lot. It not only shares with us how we're to respond, it shares with us the great, great hope. It shares with us joy. And we do that and we become dealers in hope because the hope is that Jesus is still on the throne. The hope is that every knee is going to bow, but not on necks this time. Every knee is going to bow to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's still Lord. That's what nothing but Jesus is. The hope is that the oppressed man, Jesus, the oppressed man, Jesus is highly exalted. But there's another hope that those of us who oppress others, 
that we are with Jesus, like Jesus, and there's hope for us. The hope is that every knee is going to bow, not before a political party, not before an idea, not before ideology, not before a cause, but before the logos out of broken hearts, when our hearts are renewed, when our hearts are finally healed and that God is going to be glorified through all of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. He's all we have and he's all we need. I pray for our country. I pray for our people, that we would be dealers in hope. I pray that we would be dealing out hope everywhere we can and that we would be living from the perspective of the man who humbled himself on the cross, the man who was perfect, who was treated unjustly, that we'd be dealers in that way, that we would be dealers in the hope of eternity as well, that every knee is going to bow. This is our moment, this is our time. This is our time to be dealers in hope. I pray for our country. I pray for those whose hearts are broken. I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.